So in 1655, Menashe ben Yisrael was the rabbi of Amsterdam. And he was invited to London to address the British Parliament on the Jewish question. Now, England at the time had executed King Charles and become a republic, and it was led by Puritans headed by Oliver Cromwell. And for a number of years, there had been a debate in England whether they should readmit Jews who had been expelled from England in 1290, over 300 years earlier. So Menashe ben Yisrael had already for some years been leading a campaign. There were many Dutch Jews, Jews from Amsterdam, that had business interests in London, some that lived part-time in London, and he as a Jewish leader from Amsterdam had been leading a campaign for some years to allow Jews to be readmitted to England. And so he was invited by Oliver Cromwell to address the British Parliament. And over there he explained to the parliamentarians, who were, most of them, or a big chunk of them were Puritans, um, that the Bible says that Messiah will gather Jews from the four corners of the earth. In order for Moshiach, for the Messiah to come, Jews must live in the four corners of the earth. Now, England, geographically, is in a corner. It's in the corner of the European continent. So until Jews are living in England, the Messiah will not be able to come. And so his arguments were accepted, um, along with, it was some, there was a lot more to the story, but his arguments were his lobbying paid off, and soon after, Jews were officially readmitted into England. And this is just one of many examples throughout our history where Jews used their intelligence, their power of persuasion, political connections, money, financial pressure to help their fellow Jews. Now, for many years, anti-Semites have accused Jews of having a Jewish lobby that somehow controls the holes of power. In fact, um, the Soviets and the Nazis used to have these cartoons where they would have kind of the Jew behind the White House or behind the U.S. presidents um, as the Jews controlling or behind the British leadership controlling Jews controlling the holes of power. Today you still see those cartoons coming out from Iran and other Arab countries. They somehow believe that the Jewish lobby controls the U.S. government. Um, believe it or not, there are millions of people in this country that believe the same thing. Now, these accusations are clearly ridiculous because were it to be true that Jews control the holes of power, we would not have suffered so much throughout our history, right? Clearly, the fact that we weren't always treated that well is evidence that we don't have all that much control, right? Um, Jews, they also think Jews have endless money. Um, some Jews may be wealthy. Most Jews that we know don't have endless money, right? Um, Count their pennies. So, but there is a grain of truth. Every lie has a grain of truth to it. That's what allows it to survive. And so the, it is true that Jews throughout the year have used the power that they have had, been able to get, and have used connections to lobby on behalf of their people to improve their lot. 
And this goes back to the beginning of our history. Um, some 2,400 years ago, the temple was destroyed. The first temple was destroyed. Our ancestors were taken to Babylon. Since then, throughout most history, most Jews lived in foreign lands under the reign of non-Jews. We were a minority in our land. Our leaders were not Jewish, even the land of Israel after that. For most of the time, we were under non-Jewish rule. In most places where we lived, we were hated by our neighbors. And so in every place, there was always a handful of Jews that became successful. We managed to succeed despite the odds against us, despite the persecution. And it was usually those Jews who became successful, whether politically or financially, who were able to use their influence to help other Jews. And only use their money to help Jews who were poor. We spoke about charity last week. But they also used their political influence to help other Jews. And over the years, we built a very strong tradition of Jewish diplomacy or Jewish lobbying, with Jews trying to use their influence um, in political circles to help their fellow Jews. And we even created a Yiddish word for Jewish lobbying, shtadlonus. Shtadlonus was Jewish lobbying, and that word has seeped into modern Hebrew, just become Hebrewized, um, and it's, oh, today in Hebrew it's called shtadlanut, which is essentially the Hebrew word for lobbying. But we've had this throughout our history. In Yiddish we called it shtadlanus. It was a very important part of Jewish life. Now the concept of Jews in power goes all the way back to Joseph, who became leader. Joseph was the leader of Jews was the leader of Egypt, and he used his power and his money to bring his family down to Egypt and then support them for their entire lives. He supported his entire family. Later, Moses and Aaron stand on behalf of the people before Pharaoh. They have God on their side. They perform a couple miracles. It helps. But even before Moses was sent by God to Egypt, to Pharaoh, the Midrash tells us we know Pharaoh grew, Moses grew up as Pharaoh's adopted grandson. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and he grew up in the palace. And so the Torah, he knew he was a Hebrew, he was Jewish. And so the Midrash tells us that Moses already was lobbying in his early years, lobbying on behalf of his people. And the Midrash says that he asked, God, he asked Pharaoh, since we... Um, since we... Uh, since they're working seven days a week, they're... They're, they don't have the energy to keep working. If you would grant them one day off every week, they'd be able to get their energy back and they'd be much more productive the other six days. Your overall production will be higher. And so as a result, Moses convinced Pharaoh to give us a day off every single week. An early example of Jewish lobbying of Stadlonus. Later, years later, when we went into exile, first in Babylonian exile, we had many leaders that represented us before the non-Jewish government. In fact, when we first went into exile, there were, as was the custom then, the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar took a number of pr Jewish princes from the royal house of David, and he was going to raise them as in his own palace uh, as to become leaders in the Babylonian Empire. And he did this for nations and groups across the Babylonian, uh, the Babylonian Empire. 
with the intention to have leaders from each group, from each tribe or each nation that were raised by him and loyal to the Babylonian Empire that essentially can help retain their people's loyalty. So notable were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, four friends for, who were all rose to um, positions of leadership, particularly Daniel, who rose to great power um, in the Babylonian court. And later, all four of them also rose to power in the, when the Babylonian Empire fell. They, rose, they were also powerful in the Persian Empire and used their influence to save our, to help our people. Later, in the um, Persian Empire, we know Mordechai and his cousin Esther, who was the queen in the Purim story. I won't tell the story now, which I hope you're familiar with somewhat. They used their influence to save our people. And so they um, used, they were in positions of power. Esther was in particular as a queen, and she was able to save our people. Not long after that, there was a Jewish winemaker, who was the royal winemaker, called Nehemiah, who convinced the Persian emperor to appoint him as governor over Judea, allow him to go to Jerusalem to fortify Jerusalem, which was under regular attack by other local groups, other groups nearby, and to um, strengthen Israel, which was very poor and struggling. And so he got permission to go and support from the king. So even going back to our early days, Jews were in positions of leadership, were using their influence to try to help their fellow Jews. Later, the Persian Empire fell to the Greek Empire of Alexander, and Alexander conquered the land of Israel. By now, the Second Temple had been built in Israel, but Jews were under, under Greek rule. And then the Talmud tells us that in the days of Alexander, there was a Jew who the Talmud says was a hunchback, and uh, his name was Gavia ben Pesisa. Pesisa means the hunchback, Gavia the hunchback. And he managed to build a relationship with Alexander and multiple times advocated for the Jews before the emperor and helped the Jewish people a number of times. They were, he took Alexander on a tour through the temple, the Talmud tells us, and he, um, ad- and he defended the Jews when they were accused by other nations of various things, helping our people um, when we were in trouble. Later, under Roman rule, we know many of our sages used their influence with various Roman rulers and various Roman emperors um, to try to help the lot of our people. We're told about Rabban Gamliel, who was the president of the Sanhedrin, um, how he worked to secure things for the Jewish people. Um, Even before that, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was the president of the Sanhedrin as well, smuggled himself out of Jerusalem during during the siege of Jerusalem that led to the destruction of the temple and met with the emperor Vespasian and convinced Vespasian to spare the town of Yavna and allow the Jewish religious leadership to escape to Yavna and reestablish the Jewish religious, the Sanhedrin Supreme Council and the central yeshivas in the town of Yavna. And he was able to get that concession from the emperor, from the emperor Vespasian. 
Later we're told that there were other great sages, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanania, who traveled to Rome to meet the Emperor Hadrian, advocate for our people, and Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the author of the book of Mishnah, who became close to the Emperor Antoninus, spent some time in the land of Israel. Um, in fact, his father had been an officer in Israel, and he, when growing up, he had met Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi as a child. They had been childhood friends. And later, Antoninus spent time in the land of Israel, from which he was supervising a war against the Parthians. And during that time, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi developed a close relationship with him and used that to improve the lot of Jews within the Roman Empire. So repeatedly they use their, again, they're using their positions of power and their connections with Roman leaders to um, help our people. But it was really when Jews lived in Europe that Jews became particularly, were able to, were firstly faced much, much greater persecution than they had ever faced before. And Jews were able to use their relationships and their various business acumen, their business acumen to influence um, various political leaders to help their people. And it was really in the Europe with this role of the Stadlin, of the Jewish lobbyist, really became very important. Now the first known Stadlin or Jewish um, lobbyist that we know in Europe was Chastai ibn Shaprut. Chastai ibn Shaprut was the rabbi of Cordoba in Spain. He also, like many rabbis in those days, studied medicine and practiced medicine on the side. It was very common um, in those days. Uh, what today they'd call a Renaissance scholar but people studied philosophy and astronomy and medicine kind of all went together. And so many great Jewish leaders at the time were doctors as well. And so he became, as a doctor, he became known as a very good doctor. And so he became the physician of the Caliph of Cordoba. Cordoba was then a Muslim nation, a Moorish Muslim nation, that controlled almost all of Spain at the time. And this in the 900s. And so he became, the caliph, he became the physician of the Caliph of Cordoba, developing a close relationship with him. But when the Caliph realized that he was also quite bright when it came, he had a very good business acumen, and bright when it came to financial dealings, he appointed him as the visor, which was essentially a Muslim position of the, what today they'd call prime minister, a leader under the king, um, to lead the state of Cordoba. And so he was able to use his position in Cordoba and across Spain to really usher in what was called the golden age of Spanish Jewry. He was, although technically under Islamic law, Jews are diminished, we are, they are lower class and must be treated by lower class, as lower class um, with all sorts of limits. Um, they, he was essentially able to get the Cordovan caliph to um, to remove all those limits, or most of those limits, most of those limitations, so that practically Jews had almost full freedom um, in Spanish, Moorish Spain. 
And um, he really ushered in what was, he was also the rabbi of Cordoba, he was a great Torah scholar, and he really ushered in what became a golden age for Spanish Jewry, and really Jews from around the world, from elsewhere, where they were struggling, Southern Europe, North Africa, um, Babylon, Mesopotamia, where Jews had been struggling, moved to Spain in very large numbers um, because there was so much freedom over there during the time of Chastai Ibn Shaprut. Chastai, sorry? What years? This is the 900s, in the 900s. Chastai probably became most famous for a letter that he wrote to the Yosef, the king of the Khuzars. The Khuzars, and we have a, I have a scheduled class on the Khuzars coming up, so I'm not going to get into the details. The Khuzars was a Jewish kingdom in southern Russia um, that lasted for about 200 years, an entire kingdom that converted to Judaism and lasted for about 200 years. And Chastai was fascinated by them and sent letters back and forth between them and the letters between the king of Yosef, the king of the Khuzars. And Chastai are um, really the only record that we have of the Khuzar kingdom. Um, we, that's really our, the only written record that we have of it. So um, that's perhaps what he became most famous for. About a hundred years later, in the mid 10 hundreds, um, by now Cordova had split a little, but in Granada, which was also a Spanish, smaller Spanish country, in uh, uh, Muslim country, sorry, in Spain, um, there was a Jewish leader called Shmuel Hanagid. Shmuel Hanagid was actually a pharmacist. He started off as a pharmacist. He had a pharmacy, and um, he happened to, his pharmacy happened to be near the palace. He was the rabbi also, but he had a side job. He had a job to keep it, to support himself. Um, didn't want to take money for being a rabbi. And a great Torah scholar, one of the greatest Torah scholars. He wrote a number, he wrote a number of Torah book, uh, famous books. And um, he, uh, he happened to have this, he had this pharmacy, and um, in the palace, they didn't have too many people that were literate. And so one time, one of the aides from the palace came into the pharmacy and discovered that the pharmacist there, Reb Shmuel Hanagid, um, Hanagid means the leader, he became known as Hanagid later. Reb Shmuel Hanagid was, um, knew how to write, he was literate, he discovered. And so they started out, he started coming to him to ask him to write documents. With time, he got hired in the palace to write. But with time, they realized that he was pretty bright too. And he had very good, he was writing good documents and was very good in giving them advice on various affairs. And over time, he eventually became also the visor or the leader of the country under the caliph. And um, he became really the most well-known Jew in the Spanish Muslim times, and uh, he became came he came to power in the days of a king called Habus, but he really rose. His real power came after Habus's death. There was a battle between two of his sons over who would become king, and Shmuel Hanagid used his influence to help the younger son Badis become king, and as a result, Badis he essentially became the power behind the throne. Um, and really used his influence to greatly increase Jewish freedoms and Jewish opportunities um, within Granada, and really not just within Granada, but across Spain, across the various Muslim kingdoms in Spain and North Africa. And so this really allowed, extended this golden age of Jews of Spain.
Another bull, there are many notable Shtadlanim from over the years. We're not going to cover all of them, but just to give you a little sense and cover some of the major ones. Another one of the most notable Shtadlanim moving forward to when after the Reconquista, after Spain already became, was conquered by the, by the Catholics, um, one of the most notable Shtadlanim was Don Yitzchak Abarbanel. Don, you may have heard of his name. It's kind of an unusual name, so it's one that's hard to forget. But Don Yitzchak Abarbanel was Don Yitzchak Abarbanel was the treasurer of the of Castile, or what had become Spain, what would become Spain um, under during the reign of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, who were the ones that expelled the Jews from Spain. A number of times they attempted, or they had wanted to expel the Jews. They were under their influence of the head inquisitor of Spain, Tarquamanda, and um, he, he encouraged them time and again to expel the Jews. And Don Yitzchak Abarbanel used his influence to try to stop them, uh, to try to stop it. He was successful a number of times until in 1492, they finally issued the verdict to um, expel the Jews from Spain. And um, Don Yitzchak Abarbanel went to the king and queen, and he offered a huge amount of money at the time, essentially his entire fortune, to, as a gift to the Spanish crown, if they would spare the Jews. And um, the chief inquisitor, Turcomanda, stepped in and blocked them from, and blocked his offer and convinced the king and queen not to accept them. And unfortunately, the Jews were expelled from Spain. The um, king and queen offered Don Yitzchak Abarbanel a concession to stay. They didn't want to lose their treasurer, um, but he wouldn't stay with, if all the Jews had to leave. And he then moved to Naples, where he became the treasurer of the king of Naples. Um, he moved around a little. Naples was, itself was captured by Spain, but he moved around a little bit. But he was one of the. Uh, but he at least tried to help our people. Perhaps the most influential of the Spanish Stadlonim, and maybe one of the most influential Stadlonim in our history, was a Jew called Don Yosef Nasi. Don Yosef Nasi was a had been born in Spain. He came from a major Jewish Spanish banking house, the Mendes Nasi banking family, which was a family that had business interests across Europe but had been based in Spain. They were Moranos, in other words, they had converted to Christianity outwardly, um, along with a number, many other wealthy Jews in Spain, um, pretending to be Christians, but secretly Jewish. Um, but later, um, they, were, they had to flee. They fled Spain to Europe, and eventually they settled in. He settled with his aunt, whose name was Garcia Mendez, um, who was the matriarch of the family, they settled in Istanbul, in Turkey. And there he became extremely well wealthy and extremely influential in Turkish politics. And not just in Turkish politics, but really in European politics, becoming a very important advisor to the Sultan. And he was able to use his influence. Firstly, he had a, their, his extreme wealth they used to bribe, which was a big part of the Jewish lobbying. We paid people off when we needed to. And so he used it to bribe Spanish and Portuguese authorities to allow Jews, secret Jews that had been caught to escape. 
Um, he also used his influence controlling a lot of the finance in Europe and financing a lot of the trade, a lot of the import-export business, which many of the import-export companies at the time, large import-export were Jewish, to boycott Spain and Portugal um, over because of the, over their treatment of Jews. And um, they were very successful in um, what had become a major boycott against in the late, there's the second half of the 16th century, late 1500s. They were very successful in a boycott that really um, destroyed the Spanish and Portuguese economy um, in retaliation for what they had done to the Jewish people. Um, he also was one of the primary drives and funders behind what was what was the the Union of Utrecht, which was the Protestant lands of what later became the Netherlands, were under at the time were under Spanish rule, and uh, he helped support them um, together with other influential Jews in getting them to be come to declare independence from Spain and fight, and um, they fought a war against Spain, a number of wars. I think it was called the Eighty Years' War, um, but in um, in becoming fully independent from Spain and building the, the building the Republic of the Netherlands, which became um, at the time in Europe, this is in the late 15, early 1600s, um, became the most tolerant country in Europe for Jews, giving Jews equal rights, full equal rights, and really the only place at the time where Jews had full equal rights. <coughs> he also used his influence in Turkey to build Jewish colonies for Jewish refugees. Um, build Jewish communities. Um, he, um, he was especially influential in Israel. He wanted to rebuild the land of Israel. He got, he got an appointment as the Duke of Tiberias, where he was able to build the towns of Tiberias and Svat. Svat became at the time a great trading center and became a large Jewish community um, thanks to his influence and his, um, and his help. Any questions? Yes, Carol. Why weren't American Jews able to do more during the Holocaust? Well, bring? we'll get to that. But um, why weren't they able to, or were they able to? I think is the better question. Oh, okay. Were they able to? We'll get to that. But let's, let's, uh, any other questions? Let's start. What really changed in Spain? That's a good question. Um, time. Um, first, the Muslims welcomed Jews. Then the Muslims. There was a new reign among the Muslims after a war that expelled Jews. The Christians welcomed Jews initially because they were anti-Muslim after the Muslims expelled them. Um, and then um, they started becoming very anti-Semitic over time, thanks to the Catholic Church. Well, really, it was the end of the um, three religions. March 1492 was when the last Muslim lived in Spain. So there was no longer a balance between Christianity and Islam. When it became 100% Christian is when the Jews were thrown out. Well, it was a culmination of 100 years of persecution. And um, remember, at the same time, Jews were thrown out of England 100 years before that, 200 years before that. They had been thrown out of France, out of many, many other places. So it wasn't kind of unusual. Um, 
the story of our history. Maybe one day we could do a s class on the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. That'd be a fascinating topic. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Yes, thank you. Sure. Tika? Yes. Because for Pimenta told Isabella that that was the reason she was having problems not being able to win her war. In yes, they expelled, they expelled the Muslims as well. You're right. At the same time. So now, moving across Europe, in Germany and Poland, which was really the home of Ashkenazic Jewry, um, we also had a very long history of Stadlonis or Jewish influence, Jewish lobbying. In many German-Polish lands, most of them were ruled, were feudal. They were ruled by a duke or a baron um, who essentially controlled the land and owned the people. They were slave, serf slaves. Um, and uh, there were some loose countries, but they were mostly ruled locally. And most of these dukes and barons um, hired Jews to manage their affairs. Um, Jews were literate and were good at um, mathematics to be able to new, uh, new arithmetic to be able to and had a good business acumen and knew how to get financing for their um, farming knew how to get financing for other projects for their armies for the larger for the larger um, estates and larger uh, places and so they had a lot of Jews managing their affairs, and most of these Jews who would manage affairs also became shtadlonim and advocating for their people before the ruler. And really until the 19th century when feudalism ended, um, there were shtadlonim in almost every state and land in Europe where Jews lived. Um, so I'll mention just a few of them. One notable individual in Poland, this is going back to... Um, in the 1500s, was Schall Wall Katzenellenbeugen, who was known briefly, he became famous because he was briefly appointed as king over Poland. He was known as the king for a day. <laughs> yeah, because in 1587, the king of Poland died. Poland was kind of a loose, like Germany at the time, it was a loose federation of many, many different feudal lords. Um, who would electors who would elect the king and when the last king died they couldn't um, when the one king died they couldn't agree on in the back room dealing on who the next king would be but they didn't want to go without a king that the law required them to vote for a king that day and so as a compromise they decided to elect a Jew who was there at the time because he was an aide to one of the most influential Polish lords and um, uh, elect him temporarily until they could figure it out because they knew no Jew would survive as king long term. If they would elect a Pole, then he may refuse to abdicate afterwards. They knew that would never happen with a Jew. What is it? You okay? Okay. Okay. So no worries. So during that time, um, he's called the king for a day, but he was actually king for a couple days. 
until we don't know exactly how long it was for. But during that time, the king still had absolute power. Um, he was able to, although it was somewhat limited because it was really a federal, they didn't have local power, but he was able to issue a series of edicts um, repelling anti-Jewish, repealing anti-Jewish laws and um, in support allowing Jews all sorts of concessions. Um, during those days, he kept himself very busy um, giving Jews all sorts of benefits, giving his community all sorts of benefits. He was able to do that. Um, it took time until eventually Jews fell back to where they were, but at least he had that opportunity um, as king, an absolute king. He could essentially issue whatever edicts he wanted to help his people. Um, another known Stadlin from the same period, um, and perhaps the most prominent Stadlin from that period, was Yossel of Roshheim. And um, Yasser was not actually a, a court Jew. He was they would, what they would call today a diplomat. He wasn't appointed by anyone. He was just a natural diplomat. He originally started, he was a rabbi and a businessman who was the rabbi of a town in Alsace, which is, um, which is eastern France today. Um, but then it was part of Germany in a town called Roshheim, small town, small Jewish community. But he began, first he negotiated with the local lords and very successfully on behalf of the Jewish community. He seems to have been very, very charismatic and very, very persuasive. And his negotiating skills became very well recognized around Germany. And he was called upon by other communities to negotiate with their local lords or barons um, on their behalf. Um, with time, he befriended King Charles V, who was the emperor at the time of um, the, he was one of the early Habsburg uh, monarchs and the emperor of the time of much of Europe, um, of uh, the time the um, Spain and um, Portugal and, um, and the Netherlands, what later became the Netherlands, the Spanish Netherlands and um, the, the, what was called the Holy Roman Empire or Germany um, and uh, the King of Austria and he had many, many, many other titles. And so he befriended him as King of Germany and um, he even managed to get a letter from protect, for, of protection from him for Jews. Um, and he even once snuck into at one time his um, King Charles was in, um, was in what later became Belgium and at the time in Flanders, Jews were not allowed to live in Flanders at the time, um, but Jews in Germany were facing some threats um, from some local lords, and so he snuck into Flanders, spending three months there illegally. A Jew who was caught there would be killed, spending three months there um, trying to gain audience with the king secretly. It's hard to meet a king in secret, but he tried to gain, gain audience with the king till he managed to succeed to do so, um, in order to convince, in order to get a um, edict from the king or a letter from the king to counter the problems that Jews in Germany were having at the time. And he didn't only use his skills with aristocrats. There was a peasant uprising in 1525, and the peasants, like most Europeans at the time, were anti Semites. And when they were going after the aristocrats, 
they were also killing Jews. The peasant army were killing Jews wherever they went as well. And so he went, met the leaders of the peasant army, putting himself, of course, in grave danger, but met the leaders of the, pre of the peasant army and convinced them to stop attacking Jews. The Jews were not their enemy and to leave the Jews alone and successfully convinced them. Um, he became, perhaps became most notable um, in his days when Martin Luther was the um, father of Pro German Protestantism and um, had extreme influence in Germany at the time because many of the lords in Germany had converted to Protestantism by then and he was extremely, extremely influential. And um, at a certain point, at first he was very pro-Jews, and then at a certain point he turned on Jews and became extremely anti-Semitic. He wrote a book called The Jews and Their Lies, which is essentially a very, uh, uh, very uh, strong anti-Semitic tract. And so um, he tried Yossel of Rosheim to gain audience with Martin Luther himself and influence him. He wasn't successful, but he did go to various powerful Protestant lords and Protestant um, dukes at the time to convince them to reject Martin Luther's anti-Semitism and even got many of them to ban the printing of his anti-Semitic works, books, in order to block their spread. Um, so he, in that way he was able to help Jews really across all of Europe um, as really a not appointed but just natural diplomat that seemed to have a way with words, a way of influence. Um, he a number of times debated various anti-Semites, um, debated them about Judaism and Christianity, about the Talmud, uh, but seemed to have a way with words and a charisma about him that he was really able to have great influence on um, the various feudal lords and kings at the time uh, across Europe and really helped Jews throughout Germany and throughout Europe. There were, as we mentioned, many Jews who rose to positions of prominence due to their um, financial success and um, really being able to help various kings and lords in their um, in their um, business dealings, um, some of them becoming treasurers or financiers of various courts. And they became known as court Jews, Jews who essentially worked in the courts, um, in the courts of these leaders, of these kings or, or lords. And they used their influence to try to help their people. And there were hundreds, if not thousands, of these over the many, many years, um, over about an 800-year period, um, of, fe of feudalism throughout Europe. Um, one of the most notable ones was a Jew called Shmuel Oppenheimer. Shmuel Oppenheimer um, was a um, banker who ran a large banking house in, based in Vienna. And um, he was able to, was, he was the greatest banker in Europe in the 1600s. He got permission for Jews to settle in Vienna. They had been banned from Vienna. And he became the um, financier or the treasurer of the, um, of the um, Austrian government at the time. Austria was at the, led by the Habsburgs and was a rising power at the time. 
and um, he fought to suppress anti-Semites in the Austrian Empire, got them to ban printing of anti-Semitic books, um, countered, got them to stop anti-Semites who were preaching anti-Semitism, um, and really God managed to gain various favors for Jews, both in what was the Austrian-Hungarian or the Austrian Empire at the time, as well as, well as um, in other places throughout Europe. Like many Stadlanim, he was at the mercy of whoever the king was at the time. They all were. And um, like all um, European um, courts of power, um, there were many inner feuds going on and constantly people close to the kings or lords trying to undercut each other um, and trying to push each other out. And the court Jews always faced this. Shmuel Oppenheimer did too. At one point, he was accused of fraud, of defrauding the Austrian Empire. He was arrested. His entire fortune was seized. And we have a record of this. Interestingly, there was a Jewish businesswoman in Hamburg called Gluckel of Hamelin. And she, um, she was a Jewish businesswoman, literate, and she wrote a, um, a memoir, which is one of the most famous historical memoirs, because we have very few memoirs written by kind of average people from that period. She wrote a memoir of her life. But one of the interesting things that she records in her, and you could buy it on Amazon, sorry, you could, there's English translations, I was originally written in Yiddish. But one of the interesting things she writes, and she was a very successful businesswoman um, with business dealings and connections across Europe. And one of the things that she writes is when Shmuel Oppenheimer was arrested and his fortune seized, the entire banking system in Europe froze because every banking house in Europe had, um, had um, credit from the Oppenheimers, from the Oppenheimer um, estate. They had credit. They had um, notes from them. And so nobody knew whose assets were destroyed. Nobody knew, you know, everybody had been able to borrow based on their based on their assets, based on their capital. Nobody knew how much capital they had, how much they lost, how many garbage notes they, how much they had in garbage, what was now garbage from the Oppenheimer banking house, because um, it would never be paid, of course. Um, and so the entire banking system in Europe froze, particularly in Austria. Nobody could get any loans anymore. Nobody could get any credit because nobody knew who had what. Kind of similar to what we had happen to us a couple years ago. And um, as the Austrian emperor had no choice but to release him and unfreeze his estate, or the entire Austrian empire would have gone bankrupt. So um, just to give you a sense of the influence that he had, other Jews had at the time. Um, later after his death, um, another great leader, was uh, another uh, court Jew also in Vienna in the Austrian empire was Rabbi Shimshon Wertheimer, who became financier of the Austrian Empire. In fact, when, um, when Shmuel Oppenheimer died, the Austrian Empire again, king decided again to seize his estate, um, again causing financial problems for banking houses across Europe. And um, then Shimshon Wertheimer, who was also a great prominent Jewish banker in Vienna, managed to come to the rescue. He managed to get various banks to absolve loans to the Oppenheimers and managed to 
or restructure the Oppenheimer estate to allow it to be freed by the kingdom and pay off the kingdom and um, essentially settle the estate. And uh, as a result, he then became the financier of the um, Austrian Empire, again, helping his people and influencing, um, allowing, getting great favors for Jewish people. Um, so much so that the Jews appointed him um, with the emperor's agreement as the chief rabbi of Hungary. He was a very great Torah scholar, and they appointed him as the chief rabbi of Hungary. Now, with the fall of the feudal system and the rise of democracies, Jewish diplomacy didn't disappear, but it changed. No longer did you have court Jews who had to influence the king or the lords, the dukes, but rather you had powerful Jews who were powerful politically and in political positions or in um, financial positions, particularly in the 19th century, who were able to use their influence to get anti-Semitic regimes in particular to treat Jews for the better. Perhaps most notable in the 19th century was Moses Montefiore. Moses Montefiore was one of the wealthiest men in England. Um, he was a what, what then they called a multi-millionaire. Um, today they'd call him a billionaire if you'd used in today's money. And he lived a very, very long life. And for much of his life, especially his later years when he was no longer active in business, um, he spent his years advocating for his people. And he traveled across Europe. He traveled multiple times to the land of Israel, where he helped gain um, favors for Jews in the land of Israel who were very, very badly persecuted at the time by local Arab leaders. The Ottoman Empire was very weak at the time. It was under Ottoman rule, but it was really the local leaders that were more powerful. Um, the, um, there, was, uh, there, was, uh, there was a leader in Israel at the time um, who... Uh, Ibrahim Pasha, his name was, who essentially had control of Israel, and he was able to influence him to improve the lot of the Jews. In fact, his trips are described, his wife has a diary. His wife, his name was Yehudit, Judith Montefiore, wrote a, a fascinating diary. It's also available um, of her trips to, um, uh, to Israel. And she describes the way they were treated. Wherever they came, they were treated like a king because they gave out lots of money. They helped the poor Jews. But they also gave lots of money to the leadership, right, in order to, um, whether in loans, whether in gifts, um, in order to get favors for the Jews. And they were really treated like king, a king and queen wherever they went. But he traveled not only across the Ottoman Empire. In, uh, in 1840, Jews in Damascus were accused of killing a Christian to use the blood for the matzah, the typical blood libel. And um, it was less common by the 19th century but there still were a number of them. Uh, but the most notable 19th century was in Damascus. And uh, he traveled to Damascus to use his influence to free the Jewish leaders who had been arrested and tortured, um, and uh, to also convince the French who were, it was somewhat of a French colony. It wasn't officially a French colony, but the French were very influential in Syria at the time to um, leave the Jews alone. Um, he traveled to Russia. He traveled to Italy, where he was from originally, to Morocco, to Romania, and to really across Europe. And wherever he went, um, he used his influence, financial influence, whether by straight gifts or promises of investment, to um, really improve the lot of the Jews everywhere. Um, and as a result, uh, as we all know, there's um, so many things named after him wherever you go. 
there are um, organizations and um, things named out cemeteries and old age homes and all sorts of things that were across here in the United States, really across the world, that were named after him um, in recognition of the many communities that he had helped. He really became a Jewish hero in the 19th century because of his great, he gave a lot of charity, but he also had a lot of political influence. Yes, Bill. Do you know if the, that Oppenheimer is any way tied into the, the present Oppenheimer, who I had stocked in and it went under, it was seized? And I don't know. There's been a lot of Oppenheimers over the years. Yes, I don't know. You don't know so, if they're related? I don't know. So, um, in the same time, the 19th century, another later late 19th century, um, the wealthiest man in Europe at the time was a Jew called Baron Hirsch. Um, originally from Vienna, uh, he moved around a little bit. Um, he was also what today we would call a billionaire. Um, and um, he made his money, I guess like the Vanderbilts here, building railroads across Europe. And uh, he used his influence and his agreement to build railroads, concession, railroad concessions, um, in order to gain help for Jews. Not only did he give huge amounts of money, um, to help Jews, but he uses his influence to gain favor for Jews in the Ottoman Empire, where he built the ra most of the railroads in the 19th century, as well as in Russia, where he built the railroads that ran across Russia, uh, were built by him, and uh, he gained concessions for the Jews, um, including, perhaps most notably, in 1891, he paid the Russians two million pounds um, as a gift, to, for permission to allow Jews to leave Russia. Jews at the time were not allowed. Many Jews left, were able to sneak out, but Jews, it was hard for Jews to leave Russia. There was no official permission and, uh, to allow the Jews to immigrate. And um, then he used huge amounts of money to help support immigration in various, in the, here in the United States, in other countries. And um, he essentially started the wave that sent Jews from Russia and from Eastern Europe across the world, bringing two million Jews here to the United States um, in the following 20 years or so, and uh, as well as to, to Canada, to South America, um, to England, and to really to all over the world, um, very much thanks to his influence. Um, with time, Jews have faced less persecution, thankfully, but we continue to use our influence to help Jews wherever we could. Um, we had a couple of years ago, we had a woman here from Toronto who came here to speak. Um, she had somehow built a network of connections in Syria and helped save Jews who were imprisoned in Syria and eventually helped all the Jews leave Syria. There's almost none left. Um, her influence, she managed to get them out one by one, really, um, using bribes and influence without speaking any Arabic and living in Toronto um, just with a phone and Jewish money, Jew, Jewish supporters um, managed to get, save the Jews of Syria. And uh, so we use similar things, uh, but then in democratic countries, we were able to use other kinds of influence to try to influence um, governments. Um, we, in the United States, we, was, we tried, we had enough democratic influence to be able to change views, um, among other things in the 1890s, um, there was already a large Jewish community in the United States. Russia at the time had anti-Jewish laws. They were um, 
they were requiring American Jews that went back to Russia, because many of them had family in Russia and business interests in Russia, went back to Russia, to follow those American, those anti-Jewish laws. They had to keep those laws. Um, and so um, in the 1890s, when the Senate was debating a um, treaty between the United States and Russia, Jewish lobbyists um, here in the United States managed to convince sen a number of senators to condition um, any agreement on improving the lot of the Jews in Russia. And um, not only that, allowing Jewish Americans that go back to Russia equal treatment to non-Jewish Americans, something that you know, was unheard of in any other country that we were able to do. Um, now later during World War II, there were a number of other times that we, we managed to help Jews in Europe. Unfortunately, during World War II, Jews, there were Jews who tried to help the Jews of Europe. Unfortunately, we didn't do enough. Much of the Jewish community was very timid then during World War II. Um, we probably could have done more. We created a war refugee board. We got President Roosevelt to create a war refugee board, but that still didn't help many refugees come into the United States. Um, and while we did a little bit, um, almost certainly we could have done a lot more um, for whatever reason, whether Jews didn't really believe what was going on um, or Jews were afraid um, to turn the war into a Jewish campaign, which the Nazis were trying to do, um, the Jews did not advocate as much as they should have um, and probably could have had more influence both by allowing more Jews into the country when Jews had nowhere to run, as well as once the United States got involved in the war in making it a priority to stop the Holocaust making a priority of the war rather than just trying to win the war. Um, they did, though, successfully influence um, our government to support Israel from the earliest days. President Truman, um, Chaim Weizmann was able to influence President Truman um, and others to um, support Israel in the United Nations um, and then later give it its support in its early days. Um, and that really gave a birth of Jewish lobbying for Israel here in the United States, which still exists and is very strong. Um, not all powerful, but very strong, thankfully. Um, as well as Jews have been able to lobby for ourselves. And today we have Jewish lobby groups in Washington, in Sacramento, um, and really in every democratic country in the world we have Jews that are helping advocate for their people. Contrary to the belief of anti-Semites, we don't have infinite power and money. We don't pull the strings of power, but we do, and we should use our influence to help our community and to help Israel. So when Queen Esther hesitated to risk her life to save her people, her cousin Mordechai said, you should go to the king and ask him to save your people. She said, I have fallen out of favor with the king, I'm afraid. She hesitated to use her influence Mordechai told her, God placed you in that position in order that you should save your people. Many Jews with influence could have just looked after themselves and their families. And the truth is, there were some that did. But generally, when they could, we tried to help our people. We always saw ourselves as a family. When other Jews were in pain, we all felt their pain. When other Jews were suffering, we all stood up for them. When Jews were suffering in the Soviet Union, Jews in America stood up for them. Whenever Jews were suffering in another place, it was us, we stood up for them. The other Jews in other places were able to help them. Um, when, Jews in, when Jews were in a position of power, we always took care of each other. We looked out for each other. Now, before Queen Esther went into King Ahasuerus to plea for her people, she asked the Jews to fast and to pray for her. 
So central to Jewish success has been the balance between helping ourselves and relying on God. We never relied just on our own resources, on our own ingenuity. We always recognize that Thomas says we're a lamb among 70 wolves. If not for God, we'd be swallowed up very quickly. So we would not have survived Jewish influence, Jewish power, Jewish financial success, political success is not enough to help our people. We would never have survived without God's help. And we recognize that ultimately it's God's help. Yet we don't rely solely on God. We use whatever resources we can. We use our own persuasion power, our relationships, money when necessary to help our own community. And we've always had that balance, remembering that ultimately our success comes from God, but each of us need to do our part. That's just a brief overview of our history of Jewish diplomacy, which continues till today. And uh, definitely something that if you can, you should get involved in. And I know some of you already are, um, because if we don't help our people, who will? Um, So it's really important that we do. um, Not just if it's easy to sit back and say, I'm going to worry about myself and not care about anybody else. But anybody who can should do whatever they can to help their people.